Good evening, and welcome to the TrobeAsia panel discussion on China's influence, propaganda, persuasion, and soft power in Australia. Uh, my name's Nick Bisley. I'm the executive director of the TrobeAsia, and thank you for coming. Um, as everyone in this room will know, China is a country of huge importance to Australia. Uh, the facts of the economic relationship are well known. China is Australia's most important trading partner by far. It is crucial to mining, education, tourism, and many other sectors of the economy. And more broadly, it is difficult to think of any issue of significance to Australia in the longer run in which China is not a crucial partner or participant, whether it's climate change, regional security, or geopolitics. Uh, to take a phrase from a book recently published by the Trobe University Press and co-authored by one of our panelists, China matters to Australia, and it matters a great deal. But one aspect of the relationship has become quite controversial in recent months, and that is the influence of the People's Republic of China within Australia. It's long been an issue bubbling perhaps slightly below the surface, but the mass protests by Chinese students to defend the Olympic torch while it was on its relay around the country prior to the Games in Beijing in 2008 was the first time I think Australians noticed the domestic implications of the new China. More recently, reporting by Fairfax and Four Corners raised questions about efforts to influence politicians and think tanks. While Australian universities' dependence on fees from Chinese students leave them very vulnerable. So what is the nature of China's influence in Australia? And is it a cause for concern? It's a hugely complex issue, fraught with politics, with race, and Australia's legacy of its a difficult treatment of people of non-white heritage. And we couldn't have a better group of people to unpick this complex issue and to discuss the broader themes of, sorry, broader issues relating to China's growing influence in Australia. On my right uh, is James Leibold. James is an associate professor in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at La Trobe University. My immediate left is Louisa Lim. Louisa is a senior lecturer in audiovisual journalism in the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. And on my far left, and it doesn't reflect the fact he spent a long time in Sweden in his professional career, uh, is Bates Gill. Bates uh, is a professor of Asia-Pacific Security Studies at Macquarie University, and he's also affiliated with the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the ANU. Um, the panellists will each speak for about 10 to 12 minutes in the order I introduce them. Uh, if they go for more than 12 minutes, they'll probably receive the treatment that will be meted out to many people in China in the lead-up to the 19th Party Congress. Uh, then we'll open things up for questions and discussion from the floor. Uh, Jim, you're on first. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, first I want to thank you and uh, the crew at uh, La Trobe Asia for putting together tonight's uh, important event. It's great to see so many people who I haven't seen in a long time uh, here. Um, and it's with a great deal of humility that I sort of share this uh, panel with Nick, Louisa, and Bates, three people whose work I've long such admired. Now, I want to make um, three rather simple points in my brief remarks uh, this evening. First, uh, I want to argue that we need to understand the nature of the Chinese Communist Party and how it operates at home if you want to begin to understand its influence abroad. Second, uh, I believe we need to distinguish between uh, Chinese influence or, or even the uh, influence of China and that of the Chinese Communist Party. And then finally, I want to argue that we need to move beyond an overly simplistic notion of soft power if we want to fully appreciate the CCP's influence in Australia. Um, um, who are our enemies, who are our friends? This is a question of first importance for the revolution. So opens the uh, select works of uh, Chairman Mao Zedong, one of the founders, I'm sure, as everyone knows, 
of the Chinese Communist Parties uh, and the first leader of the People's Republic of China. Working out the answer to this crucial question is what the Chinese Communist Party, or the CCP as I'll refer to them, calls United Front Work, or or Tongzhang Gongzuo. United Front Work is all about using um, a range of uh, strategic levers and tools to co-opt potential allies while disarming potential adversaries. In other words, it's about winning over friends and destroying enemies. On the eve of the uh, CCP's victory in 1949, uh, Mao listed United Front Work as one of uh, the party's three uh, fabao, or magic weapons. Um, the United Front uh, Work Department is headquartered in Beijing, and its offices are, uh, uh, of the United Front Work Department, or the Tongjambu, are hidden deep inside the leadership compound at Zhongnanhai. Uh, it's one of the party's oldest and arguably most important departments, yet it neither has a fixed address, nor do its operatives carry name cards. Rather, they work from the shadows, Uh, meaning we know very little about the activities of the United Front Work Department, both inside China as well as outside of China. If the United Front Work Department were a house at Hogwarts, Slytherin it would be, due to the (laughs) opaque and slithery nature of its work. Yet the key to the success of United Front Work has been its universalization across all aspects of the party. With every single party cutter, every single party organ, expected to be engaged in United Front work. Inside China, the United Front operatives seek to win over ethnic minority elites as well as wealthy entrepreneurs. Outside of China, uh, the Chinese uh, Chinese, uh, community, both overseas, Chinese students as well as business leaders, have emerged as a key target. The current uh, uh, leader of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, has come to realize the importance of United Front work Uh, has also praised its talisman-like qualities and has significantly increased both uh, its resources as well its role uh, since coming to power in 2012. Now, today, the United Front Work Department is increasingly active uh, outside of China, including here in Australia. One of its key uh, organs is the awkwardly named Australia-China Council for the Promotion of Peaceful National Unification, a Mouthful. Much easier to say in Chinese, the He Tonghui. The He Tonghui has city-based chapters and hundreds of active members in each of our major capital cities. The Australian branch, which was established in 2000 by William Cho, a key CCP operative, is part of a much larger global network with over 200 branches active in more than 100 countries on five continents. And this network of United Front workers is um, led by uh, Yu Jianshan. Yu Jianshan is a member of the Politburo Standing Committee and one of the key top leaders of the Chinese Communist Party. <clears throat> now, the He Tonghui seeks to promote the interests of both the CCP and its own members in each of the jurisdictions in which it operates. We now have a number of examples, none of which I'll go into any detail about, of leading He Tonghui members, such as the chairman of the Australian branch, Huang Shangmo, seeking to influence the Australian political uh, process by winning over key politicians, business leaders, and even academics. Yet there are many other United Front organs in Australia, such as the uh, Chinese Students and Scholars Association, the Australia-China Friendship Society, the Network of Confucius Institutes and our major universities, Chinese language media outlets, 
not to mention the PRC's own network of consulate officials as well as spies. Now, in my opinion, I think it's really important that we stop talking about Chinese influence here in Australia. Um, the over one million residents of Chinese ancestry are a rich part of the fabric of Australian life. They have made significant contributions to our growth, our prosperity, as well as our diversity. And we need to ensure that they continue to do this. In short, we need to embrace the Chinese community here rather than seek to demonize them. The focus of our concern, in contrast, should be on any meddling by the Chinese Communist Party and its often shadowy organs in our society. The party uh, shares neither our values nor our national interests, nor why should it? It's an authoritarian oligarchy, uh, obsessed with maintaining its own, party, uh, own power and willing to brutally silence any of its critics. Um, that is exactly what happened to the Nobel uh, Peace Prize laureate Liu Xiaobo, who was imprisoned by the party and then literally uh, left to wither behind bars where he died earlier this year. Why? Because he dared to question the authority of the party and suggest that China uphold a universal set of values such as freedom of speech, assembly, and religion. Our small democracy here in Australia can ill afford to have party operatives and their allies tell us how to think and tell us how to act. Even if this means, at times, we need to put our principles ahead of our economic bottom line. Finally, I, I want to um, suggest that we need to move beyond soft power if we want to fully appreciate the nature of CCP influence here in Australia. Soft power, as I'm sure many of you know, is the ability to persuade others to follow in your way. It's about uh, the natural attraction of ideas in culture. Think Taylor Swift or Ryan Gosling, as my daughter prefers, <laughs> rather than guns and missiles. Now, I agree with, with the American scholar David Shambaugh, as well as Joseph Nye, who coined the term uh, uh, soft power, that China currently possesses very little soft power internationally, with uh, Peking duck and perhaps some of its other dishes being its greatest soft power asset at present in the West. Yet I think we do ourselves a serious disservice uh, by limiting our discussion of CCP influence only to the realm of soft power. As any good so uh, French social theorist knows, power has many different faces and flows like a set of capillaries throughout social life. Um, the CCP's United Front Toolkit includes not only ideology, but also the power of uh, persuasion, coercion, calculation, and perhaps most importantly at present, the power of greed. Over time, like that parable of a frog in slowly burning water, these tools can lead to the gradual acculturation of a different set of norms and practices. In short, I believe that we need to look beyond soft power at the hard realities of CC, in, CPP influence inside Chinese society as well as abroad. We need to pull back the veil on the party in order to cast light into the shadows. And it's there that we'll see the party and its united front workers hard at work. At present, the party's successes have been chiefly confined to the Chinese community here in Australia, in particular overseas students as well as recent arrivals. Yet it is making some inroads into the wider community. Both of these issues should concern us. In conclusion, I believe that we need to be wide-eyed about the nature of the Chinese Communist Party in its efforts to influence Australian society. We need to encourage more public discussions like this evening's. We need to explore the implications for our democracy as well as other democracies across the globe. 
And finally, we need to avoid at all costs any racist, xenophobic uh, sloganeering. Like Mao once advised, we need to win over as many friends as possible to create our own united front of people who cherish the same universal values and rules-based international order that we do. Thank you very much. Louisa. Thanks, Nick, and thank you for inviting me to take part in this panel tonight. I'm going to take a slightly different tack and look at the issues of high technology and hard cash. I'm going to talk about one particular case and unpick it as an example of Chinese influence in Australian academia. It's an investigation that my colleague Anders Furs and I have been uh, conducting for a while now, and our story just went up on the Guardian website a few hours ago. And I think it's a really good example of the kind of influence that we are seeing within Australian academic institutions. It really shows how high both the risks and the rewards are for Australian institutions of working closely with the Chinese state. And it shows how multifaceted these collaborations can be and how complicated the relationship is and how influence can come in many forms. So I guess this story started in April last year in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing when Australia's Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull posed with the Chinese Premier Li Keqiang in front of an array of flags of the two countries and they were carefully placed in front of a screen showing cranes, flying cranes, their birds that stand for longevity and peace. So that's maybe a symbolic vision illustrating the hopes for the bilateral relationship. And as the two leaders smiled and posed for the cameras, uh, deals were being inked. And one of them was an agreement to set up what is called a torch precinct at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. So torch is a Chinese program designed to at science and technology development and acquisition. It began in 1988. And now in China, there's around 150 torch parks where researchers and businesses are co-located and they create startups together. So according to the Ministry of Science and Technology, these have uh, been responsible for creating 10% of China's GDP. But this deal was for the first uh, torch park overseas in the world. And that was at UNSW, the University of New South Wales in Sydney. It was a deal that had been set up by the chancellor of that university, Ian Jacobs, and he had suggested the idea to the director general of the Torch High Technology Industry Development Center, Zhang Zhihong, on a trip some months earlier. Uh, why did he do it? In one word, money. And in his own words, Ian Jacobs wrote uh, an article where he said, we didn't want to keep going back, cap in hand, to Canberra asking for more. Instead, we went to China. And that worked really well. Four months after the signing ceremony, the Torch Project opened with $30 million in investment and this big fanfare. For a week, the Randwick campus of UNSW was bathed in red lights to celebrate. Uh, the eight partners that initially uh, would, were uh, the Chinese partners were chosen for the university by the Ministry of Science and Technology in China. They were six co solar companies, a cable company, and a nanotechnology company. And the university itself said it was using the Chinese government as a facilitation mechanism, the entry and identification point for companies. 
And this is really interesting because it comes at a time when other institutions have been criticized for accepting money from Australian citizens with Chinese backgrounds. This is different. It's a collaboration with the Ministry of Science and Technology, which is an arm of the Chinese state. But Chinese ministries can be very efficient. And indeed, uh, the Ministry of Science and Technology found partners for the university with incredible speed. So barely 18 months after it began, the Torch Precinct now includes 13 companies with $33 million in investment and another $50 million under negotiation. So these companies gave the university money, and in return they get free space and PhD scholarships for their employees. So for the scientists, what does it mean? Uh, in the case of the flagship project, it meant new facilities, lots of funding, a $10 million lab for one scientist who works with Hangzhou Cable, so he got a lab at UNSW funding for that, and another lab in Hangzhou next to the factory, where prototypes could be made really um, quickly and at scale. And for that particular scientist, the rewards were great. Uh, he has uh, filed more than nine patents in two years. Uh, so finally, Australian research is being translated into real-life applications. So what is the downside? Well, 30 companies in 18 months. Who are they? That's one of the questions we had. And we found that at least seven are companies that are doing work in fields that could have potential for military use. So we're talking aerospace, nanotechnology, underwater cameras and robots, uh, GPS navigation systems. And one of the companies that is involved is Huawei Technologies, so that's the same Huawei that was banned from participating in Australia's national broadband network on security grounds after advice from ASIO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organization. It's the same Huawei that was also has been banned from bidding for US government contracts. So in a way, the profile of these companies raises a lot of questions from security to strategic posture to geopolitics to influence in the education sector. And I will unpick those a little bit. When it comes to security, one big question is if the technologies that are being invented and shared could potentially give China a military advantage in the region. So uh, we spoke to one expert, Rory Medcalf, who's the head of the National Security College at Australian National University. And he said it's not necessarily about issues of war and conflict it's about issues like surveillance, detection, submarine activity, areas where Australia and China's military are already competing with one another on a day-to-day -day basis. So we asked the university how, what they were doing to prevent this kind of thing from happening. And the university says it's done its due diligence. It's contracted an outside party to carry out checks on the companies. If sensitive technologies are exported, then they go through Defence Trade Control Act checks. So it says it's followed the rules. But one danger is that in the current climate, technologies are always evolving. You can only make lists of technologies that already exist, but some cutting-edge work is so specialised that researchers really don't know uh, whether there's any dual-use potential until after they've finished. Um, and so experts have told us this investigation could potentially show up a need to review the national approach to export controls, both on intangibles and pre-commercialization research. And I mean, there have been precedents here. Back in 2008, 
There was an Australian catamaran hull that was sold for civilian purposes for a ferry fleet to China, and that ended up on Chinese military vehicles, vessels. So uh, it's also a matter of looking at China's national policies. And for decades, China has followed a policy that some have characterized as techno-nationalism. So this is its drive to become a science and technology power. And for China, evolving high-tech technology is a way of avoiding the century and a half of humiliation that it suffered at the hands of foreign powers. And in the past... uh, Beijing acquired technology by all kinds of ways, by joint ventures, technology transfers. And now it's using new techniques like mergers and acquisitions of foreign company and partnerships. The latest iteration of uh, this policy is called Made in China 2025. And this calls for China 70% of China's manufacturing supply chain to be made in China by 2025. So in the short term... By helping Chinese companies develop technologies, Australian scientists could, in the long term, end up shutting Australian companies out of the market. I think it's always worth remembering that for Beijing, science is national security. It's not necessarily value-free. So in Washington, there's already alarm at just how fast China's overtaking the U.S. in some key sectors. China's tested the world's first quantum satellite communication. It's announced human trials to treat cancer. Uh, It's added huge amounts of solar energy generation capacity. And given this context, uh, the leading expert on China's science policy, Richard Sutmeyer, told us that a deal like Torch would be very hard to push through in the US right now. Um, There would be a lot of political problems getting it through because there's alarm about the sophistication of tech development strategies. And when we asked him about how he viewed the torch, he said one can't help wondering about a Faustian bargain quality to the program. International partners can reap benefits in the short run, but may lose out in the longer run if they're not far-sighted. Others were even more blunt. One expert on China's science strategy said this is a gift handed over to China. It sounds like Australia's inadvertently set up a very nice system to get out around blockage of these deals. So there's that. And then there's the influence on education. The Torch Precinct is only just beginning. Uh, The next step will be a $100 million refit of a building, followed by a redevelopment of 100,000 square meters of the Randwick um, campus, which would require capital investment of a billion dollars. So those Chinese dollars, uh, as one University of New South Wales official called them, rivers of gold, they're flowing in. But the question that's worth asking is, how is that buying influence? Will it affect decisions about what kind of scientific research is done and what isn't done, and who does that research? And given that the Ministry of Science and Technology has helped pick at least some of the Chinese partners, how much influence do they have over those companies? There's often a very thin firewall between Chinese companies and the states. Um, We asked someone else, Clive Hamilton at Charles Sturt University, who's writing a book about China's influence on Australian universities. We asked him about how he saw this scheme, and he said, I think the Torch program will make UNSW, in effect, 
a client university of the People's Republic of China in science and technology areas. It's worth remembering this is just the beginning of the torch experiment in Australia. In the meantime, Queensland is also holding negotiations for a torch precinct of his own. And, you know, the fact is that all this funding from China is very welcome in Australia because of funding cuts. In the current climate, many institutions see not accepting Chinese money as a bigger threat than accepting it in order to subsidize their research and keep going. So that's not to say that institutions shouldn't collaborate with Chinese partners. Uh, such collaborations can be extremely valuable and important. But it is to say they should happen out in the open. Uh, the Torch project has ramped up so fast that very few details about it are in the public. And we've spent weeks compiling lists of the companies involved and asking for more information. So I would say it is time for an open discussion about the risks and rewards of these kind of partnerships. They need to be out on the table so they can be assessed. It's not China bashing to want to know how these collaborations work. I think it's smart and it is time for Australia to get smart about Chinese influence and the kind of pathways that it can take inside Australian institutions. Thank you. Let me um, join with my colleagues in thanking uh, Nick Beasley and Latrobe Asia uh, for inviting me here and having uh, this panel. Um, I think it's uh, uh, very timely, Nick, uh, but also um, very important uh, that such a difficult and even quite sensitive topic is uh, being offered up and uh, we can shed hopefully some further light on it. I'm going to draw from um, two uh, pieces that I've uh, recently written, one being the book which uh, Nick alluded to earlier, uh, China Matters, Getting It Right for Australia, um, which I co-wrote with Linda uh, Jacobson, uh, but also a uh, China Matters policy brief, which is going to be um, released tomorrow, um, which is asking the question, uh, is there something wrong with Chinese international students? And we talk um, in some detail about this issue, which does, um, in some ways, cut across the questions we're talking about tonight. Uh, in the book, uh, the chapter that we uh, deliver on so-called soft power, or I think a better term, agreeing with James here, is uh, it's actually influence projection. Uh, or as the first ambassador to China uh, from Australia, Steve Fitzgerald, has once termed it, soft power with Chinese party state characteristics. <laughs> Um, we, we tell the story of uh, an interesting episode last year in Times Square uh, when for about a month's period on one of those giant uh, electronic billboard screens right at the center of, of, of New York's busiest uh, area uh, was a three-minute film uh, about the South China Sea. Uh, it was full of glitzy and lovely photographs of that part of the world, uh, but it was also interspersed with talking heads of, of various types and persuasions, Chinese and otherwise, uh, talking about how uh, this is China's, the South China Sea. Completely at odds with what other parts of the international community believe and certainly completely at odds with what just a week prior uh, the permanent court of arbitration in The Hague had decided with regard to Chinese claims in the South China Sea. Now, strolling through the tens of thousands of persons strolling through Times Square, 
and looking up at those billboards and maybe even being quite interested in what was being said and portrayed there, would probably have had very little understanding that these, uh, this beautiful video had been entirely produced and paid for by another, a little known uh, arm of the Chinese party state uh, known as the Propaganda Department. Uh, the Chinese call it now today the Publicity Department, uh, which is its own effort to um, put a soft power spin uh, on what it's trying to do. The point here being uh, that, uh, like the United Front Department, uh, the Propaganda Department of the Chinese Communist Party has been given enormous amounts of resources in an effort to try and shape how China is viewed around the world. So their work is not only domestic, although it is powerfully so, domestic inside China, but it's also increasingly gone international in an effort to try and shape how the outside world thinks about and views China. And in particular, I think uh, what we need to recognize is that this is at its heart, because it is, after all, a Chinese Communist Party organ which is uh, delivering this work, it is at its heart, ultimately, an effort to assure the continued survival and legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, it's true that increasingly they have become more sophisticated in portraying images of China, which I think much of the world can appreciate. For example, China's rich history, its remarkable cuisine, its remarkable language, the ingenuity of the Chinese people over thousands and thousands of years, uh, and even into this present day, such things as the Beijing Olympics, the Shanghai Expo, high-speed rail across, um, uh, across China to Tibet, uh, other remarkable economic achievements. Uh, these uh, are, in many ways, worthy of respect. Uh, and even in many parts of Asia, I would say, uh, in other parts of the world, emulation. Uh, but it's the Chinese Communist Party which is seeking to appropriate uh, these great accomplishments of the Chinese people to its own benefit. And we have to understand that that uh, is what we see in many respects as the propaganda uh, bureau is increasingly active in places like Australia. So according to uh, research by Sun Wanning at the University of Technology, Sydney, uh, virtually all, I think something like 25 or 26 of the, of the 26 or 27 Chinese language uh, newspapers and media outlets in Australia are owned and operated by Chinese state media companies. What does that mean? That means if you're reading these Chinese uh, uh, media sources in Australia, you are highly unlikely, probably impossible, to see anything in any way critical of the Chinese Communist Party and probably unlikely to see anything that's going to speak to sensitive topics over which there might be a great deal of disagreement. For example, uh, sovereignty issues in the South China Sea, uh, uh, freedom of religion in China, internet censorship in China. These and other such sensitive topics are not likely to be uh, discussed in these sorts of media outlets in Chinese language sources here in Australia. And the story in Australia is true across the world. Uh, increasingly, under the direction of the Propaganda Bureau, uh, large Chinese media companies are buying up assets all around the world, newspapers, radio stations, developing a film, television content, news content, uh, and delivering it uh, all across the world in, in local languages as well as in Chinese. And again, um, 
Given the source, the ultimate source of this information, it's clear that that information is going to be slanted in ways uh, that is seeking to preserve the legitimacy and survival of the Communist Party and to, um, in the expectation that the, those viewers and listeners will come around to having a more favorable and positive image, not just of China, but as I say again more deeply, of the Chinese Communist Party and its leadership itself. A second interesting way that we talk about in the book, and this is the subject of the uh, policy report that's coming out tomorrow, has to do with Chinese students in Australia. Uh, as we all know, this is an extremely important source of revenue for uh, uh, Australian universities. Uh, remarkably, for example, uh, among G8 G G08 universities, some 60% of international students at those universities are from the People's Republic of China. So clearly important as a financial and intellectual resource uh, for the development of Australian universities. Unfortunately, uh, there are many, many documented cases of how uh, the Chinese Communist Party, through its representatives here in Australia, namely at the consulates and embassies, and through such organizations as the Chinese Students and Scholars Association, look to monitor what students and teachers say with regard to China's Chinese topics, and especially those sensitive topics like the South China Sea, or freedom of religion, or censorship of the internet, and the like. Uh, and we'll report on uh, the words and deeds of students and teachers when they talk about these sensitive topics in an effort to stifle, or at least to, to try and constrain and restrict uh, the types of things that are said about China in the classroom. Now, this is a direct affront, obviously, to academic freedom, uh, and it does run contrary, I would think, to uh, Australian uh, scholarly values. And this is well documented and widespread, unfortunately. We talk about this in our book, and we talk about it in this uh, policy brief as well. Thirdly and finally, um, I think it's one topic we haven't touched on yet uh, uh, much, is the effort to try and sway political figures. Uh, or to try and have some influence or access uh, to Australian uh, and other uh, countries' political leaders. Um, in the course of conducting the research for China Matters, getting it right for Australia, I was shocked to learn that Australia is one of only a very small handful of countries in the world that actually allows foreigners to donate uh, to political parties and political campaigns. I think New Zealand might be another one. I think even Zimbabwe. So you're in good company. Um, I find it shocking. Um, but this is, this is an Australian decision and not something I can have much influence over. But it's shocking. Uh, and we know very well uh, that uh, source, Chinese sources of money are one of the largest sources of cam foreign campaign donations uh, to both, political, both major political parties here in Australia. And we're also familiar with some cases of those donations getting some of our politicians in some hot, some hot water. Um, looking at the Australian Electoral Commission files in which uh, these donations are supposed to be reported, very poorly uh, recorded, very poorly archived, uh, forms uh, mis, 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 um, mistyped, uh, just vague addresses identifying where the sources of these, of these are uh, is, is common. 
So again, getting back to what Louise was saying already, um, you know, this is this is totally legal, uh, what's happening, uh, but it's not very transparent and not very well uh, uh, understood. So these are just a few of the issues I think we can point to of ways in which the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the Chinese Party state, is trying to influence the way we think and, and shape our image and understanding uh, of, of China. To conclude, uh, let me just try to underscore three important points. I think it's very, very important that we recognize that this is about the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and you know, all governments around the world, in one way or another, try through various forms of public diplomacy and other means to influence how other countries think about them. There's nothing weird or strange about that. Uh, I think what's different here in this case is what it's really about at the end of the day uh, is maintaining the survival and the legitimacy of a one-party state. So secondly, it's very, very important then that I think we need to be very careful that we're not talking about Chinese influence. We're not talking about China's effort to influence us. We're talking about the Chinese Communist Party's effort to influence us. And I think we need to be very careful in how we word such things. Because, as was said at the beginning, uh, China, Chinese people, uh, citizens of Chinese descent in Australia are part of this rich cultural fabric we have and have made enormous contributions to the success, prosperity, and diversity of this country. If we're not careful, if we let these sorts of issues get out of hand or spin out of control, uh, we are at real risk of alienating the vast, vast, vast majority of persons, whether they're Chinese students, tourists, uh, 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 immigrants, and citizens who come to this country and have every good intent to be uh, fully supportive of Australian values in our society. So let's be very cautious. Let's not exaggerate this issue. But let's have our eyes open and seek greater transparency. Thank you. Uh, our panelists have covered a very wide terrain um, from, from the Little Red Book um, through to a hint at Sam Dastyari and, and almost everything in between. Um, universities are, are, are clearly a, um, uh, a stage on which this com complex drama is playing itself out. Uh, and here at La Trobe, we see an important function of the universities as being a forum for these sorts of public debate. And, and, uh, and that's exactly what we've got 45 minutes left to do, which is to have your comments, questions um, to our panellists, um, and we'll attempt to answer them or have um, constructive discussion around them. Um, there are two mics. If you could catch my attention, the light's a little tricky. Um, so th as I thought, Paul's at the front here first and then I'll, I'll get a little list and I'll hopefully we'll get all the way around. So the gentleman in the beret, third row back. Thanks, Paul. Um, that was a terrific panel and uh, I think that uh, all three presentations are excellent. And I want to fully endorse the suggestion, starting with Jim and seconded at the end by Bates, that we separate out talking about China or Chinese Australians from the Communist Party. It's a distinction I've tried to make over the years. Um, but that said, I do have a question, many questions I might ask. I want to direct this particular question to Bates. Bates, you'll know that recently I reviewed the book China Matters. I was very glad that it was published. 
But I did critically remark that the call for mandatory studies of, of Chinese and other Asian cultures in all our schools from year one and the creation of a peak body on China struck me as ideas that needed a bit more thought. I wonder if I could get you to expand a little on what you and, and Linda had in mind in saying we need a peak body and what role such a body might play in the context the three of you so very ably just outlined. Thanks very much, Paul, and thanks for your uh, review. I, I, we really did appreciate that sort of feedback. Um, we, I think we were cognizant uh, that you know, calling for greater Asia literacy uh, in Australia is nothing particularly new uh, and has obviously been a part of, of the um, uh, effort uh, of, of many across the country uh, to work harder to remind Australians just where they are geographically, <laughs> which is in Asia. Um, and obviously, you know, the work of Latrobe Asia being uh, just one of many, many uh, that are working that, that pathway. So it's a good point. You know, this is nothing particularly new there. But the peak body there, I think what we, what, what we had in mind there uh, would be something... Uh, the, the, the strategy there is to recognize not that... Uh, when we say get closer to China or to understand China, it uh, doesn't necessarily mean to uh, embrace uh, or only have uncritical and favorable views of China, uh, or to put it even more sharply, to get in bed with China. Uh, but uh, we felt quite strongly that given the importance of China to Australia, uh, there seems to be a great deal more work that needs to be done to, like this panel, to open up eyes, to be more realistic and strategic about how this relationship should unfold. Um, and that such a body, if properly designed and properly supported, uh, could serve that function. One idea that we had in the back of our minds, I suppose, or at least I certainly did when we tried to generate this idea, was uh, my experience in the United States with something called the National Committee on U U.S.-China Relations. Um, this is a body that is not uh, uncritical of China, uh, but which has served over 40 or 50 years as a kind of uh, third party, I guess, in good times and bad, uh, through which the two countries can converse and learn about one another more, more deeply. Um, there may well be bodies like that already here in Australia that, that try to work on those sorts of things. And like we say, lots of organizations are working on this. But I think we saw this as an opportunity to, to, to deliver a stronger signal uh, that Australia and Australians are prepared to invest even more time and energy and effort at a, at a national level to come to understand this country. Um, one, one line sort of we had in the book was, uh, if, if Australia invested half as much money uh, and time and energy that they have in understanding uh, what goes on inside the Beltway, meaning Washington, D.C., uh, to, to also trying to understand what goes on inside the Third Ring Road in Beijing, um, I think Australia would be a lot better off. Um, Chep Chow, the front here. Hi, my name is Chep Chow. Now, um, I grew up in Kuala Lumpur, in the, right in the middle of a CBD. There was a big, tall building known as USIS, United States Information Service. 
It's a great place for us kids, you know, because not only that they give um, very regular free movies in languages that we could understand as kids, I mean, foreign languages, English, uh, but it was free anyway. And also they gave up some glossy magazines that sort of my mum was happy to use as book wraps. <laughs> and, and, and what's the difference between this and what you mentioned about the three minutes clip on South Sea China in, in the Central Square? And on the uh, collaborative funding for U- University of New South Wales, right? shouldn't that question be asked of the Australian government? Why Australian government cut back on university funding? That requiring the university to seek funding from foreign power. And to James, my old friend, right? you mentioned Wang Xiaomo is personally known to me. and uh, I do not think that he has got particular uh, political inclination irrespective of the Four Corners program I watched, which we in Chinese say shooting at shadows, right? And, and there was just like fishing for some information that I felt that wasn't there. Uh, I like your comment on that. I think one for each panellist. Uh, Jim, you want to get first from a word back? Seeing as Bates had the first well, that's swing. that's the most explosive <laughs> one. <laughs> Pong Helmo. Um, I mean, chap, you, you know him personally, so I, I've never met him. All I know about him is what I've read through the media. Uh, obviously, the Four Corners episode, which I'm sure most people are aware of, uh, was a bit of shooting at shadows. Uh, I agree with you. When I watched it, I uh, thought, well, there's a lot of smoke here, uh, but you know, not, not, uh, not, not any clear uh, Evidence um, with regards to Huang Chamo, I would suggest that people read Philip One's excellent reporting on the situation in which he came to Australia. Um, clearly, uh, he made most of his money in Shenzhen um, and then arrived rather suddenly uh, here in Australia, and then immediately uh, took a very high-profile role in not only establishing uh, his business interests here but as well as uh, making all sorts of political donations uh, to both sides of politics. And as Bates said, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing unusual about that, except for the fact he's not an Australian citizen. He's a permanent resident, but he's not an Australian citizen. Uh, but under Australian law, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think in the case of Sam Dastiari, uh, we have very direct evidence of him trying to influence the Labour party's policy on South China Sea. You know, Senator Dastiari would admit to that. I think it was quite clear uh, in the press conference that they held together that that was going on. Again, this happens in many different situations where uh, foreign countries try to lobby, governments try to influence the political process. What I think was slightly different in this case is that it was, you know, it was under the rug until quite recently uh, people weren't aware of uh, the prominent role he had in the Chinese community, his chairmanship of the He Tonghui, his uh, political donations, his uh, influence inside Canberra. Um, and I think what, I, uh, if I can speak on behalf of the panelists, all of us are calling for is more public transparency. We need to know what is going on. We need to kind of cast light in the shadows and then uh, weigh up this uh, in a kind of calm, rational fashion to see to what extent we're, we, we as a nation are comfortable with this type of influence. I personally have some concerns about it, uh, particularly 
when it comes at the benefit of the Chinese Communist Party, an organization that I believe doesn't share the same values that uh, most Australians do. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and um, Jeff Raby, who's La Trobe Asia board member and was the Australian ambassador um, to to China for um, four or five years, who was interviewed for the Four Corners, was kind of ropeable at 45 minutes of interview and 90 seconds of, of sort of selective editing on in the Four Corners report. But um, I'll pass it on to, to Louisa to respond to Chap's question. So you asked about whether the Australian government has a case to answer when it comes to university funding. And, of course, this is a major issue for universities. You know, one of the reasons why they're so open to funding from other sources is because of their shrinking budgets. And we certainly did try to ask um, the Department of Education and the Prime Minister's office as well about, you know, how this, you know, how these, the, the context for these kind of, kind of partnerships um and you know it it was um it was interesting uh their response was pretty much to shy away from the issue of universities now having to sort of act more like corporations in finding their own funding and to say that uh the department of education was supportive of innovative ideas that develops australia's reputation um, as a partner of choice in these kind of partnerships. Um, but it, it is certainly a huge issue. And in fact, um, former ambassadors are getting a lot of play on this panel tonight. But we also went to um, Stephen Fitzgerald, who's the first ambassador, first Australian ambassador to China. And he um, had comments along similar lines. He said, um, on the one hand, universities have been forced into a position where they're just out busking for money. On the other, we have a government that seems to be incapable of taking a serious, considered, long-term, strategic view of our relations with China. So it's kind of two, two, two different factors at play here. Thank you. You asked uh, the question, which I think essentially was asking me what's so different about the USIS, the United States Information Service, which I don't think exists anymore. Uh, but it did uh, back some years ago. Um, Well, uh, as I said in my remarks, um, every government in one way or another, typically through public diplomacy efforts, uh, tries to shape uh, their image uh, in foreign countries uh, through their embassies and consulates and the like, and that was what you were experiencing in in KL. Uh, I guess the the difference I would want to stress is that in one case you have efforts that are at root designed to sustain and allow for the continued legitimacy and existence of a one-party autocratic state. Um, let's, not, let's not mince words. That's what the CCP is. Uh, versus uh, a government, which I think we would all agree is a far more open, far more democratic place, uh, which I think we would also agree, as uh, Jim just said, uh, represents values which are much closer to those which Australians share. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend uh, that there haven't been some pretty dark episodes on the part of the United States to try and shape world and local opinion, uh, especially during uh, the worst years of the Cold War. Absolutely true. Um, but I think uh, to, to try and draw some sort of, uh, um, sort of equivalence uh, between what the Chinese Communist Party Department of Propaganda represents uh, and what the United States State Department represents through its public diplomacy is is really wrong-headed. 
Uh, and it's important that we uh, have, have that distinction in mind when we are viewers or readers or absorbers of the information that's being delivered to us, whether that's from Moscow or from Beijing or from Pyongyang or from Washington, uh, DC. All right, the gentleman at the back, um, hand, he's got his hand up there, yep. Uh, hello, my name is Julian Beckerdahl. I work at RMIT University. Uh, we have a lot of important institutional partners in China. And my questions to the whole panel, outside of Australia, where else is Chinese soft power most evident or, or more advanced compared to Australia? And what sort of impact is that having on that particular society or country? I'll make one suggestion of a paper you should read and a country you should look at more closely, and that's New Zealand our neighbor. So Emery uh, Brady, who is a professor of Chinese politics at Canterbury University, has just written a paper looking at uh, Chinese, uh, well, let's be clear about it, the Chinese Communist Party's influence, uh, efforts to influence New Zealand society. And I was actually just reading it on the, the, the train over. Uh, I haven't gotten to the juicy bits, so I, I don't know all the details, but some of you will know uh, this incident involving an MP for the National Party's uh, a gentleman named Yang Jen, who uh, some suggestion, uh, well, he's, he's a person of interest by the New Zealand uh, Security uh, Agency, and there's suggestions that he may have some connections with the party. I think he claims to be a party member, uh, and that he taught at a military uh, intelligence academy at some time. Um, you know, New Zealand's different from us. Uh, in some ways, they're not as vulnerable economically, but they're also uh, perhaps a bit of a softer target. Uh, so I think they're a useful comparison. Uh, I'd be interested what the others think about uh, the United States or Canada. Uh, I was just in the U.S. speaking on this topic, and uh, people were kind of surprised by the sophistication of the discussion that was going on in Australia and a little bit concerned about maybe the Americans had, uh, weren't re really uh, looking at this carefully. But that said, I think uh, we economically, in terms of our tertiary education, are far more uh, enmeshed uh, with China than, than the United States, and so perhaps a bit more vulnerable to some of this influence. You um, beat me to it. I was also going to suggest Anne-Marie Brady's paper, um, which is, I think, actually echoes a lot of the themes that we've been talking about tonight. Right in the summary, she talks about the magic weapons of democracy, um, that democracies own, that should be used in order to uh, combat uh, the influence of the Communist Party in China. And she mentions freedom of speech and association and the fourth estate, both the traditional and the new media. So I, I think that's um, definitely a place to look at. I would say when it comes to the U.S., I, I think that actually the, the mood has shifted recently in D.C., and especially when it comes to, um, in our recent reporting about science and technology and the sort of competition that's going on in that sector, um, there's been a lot of... Uh, concern recently. The, uh, there was a piece um, that appeared a few days ago on, called something like China's Sputnik's moments is China overtaking us. And I think that uh, in the US the, the, there's a, perhaps a heightened awareness of um, 
the sophistication of China's long-term strategy that I think is perhaps missing here because of a, a, a real lack of China literacy amongst sort of the highest placed people in institutions. Just a couple of comments. Um, the, I think we need to be really careful how we use this word soft power because I think what we're seeing actually on the part of the Chinese Communist Party is not soft power. It's actually something much more blunt than that. Um, Soft power, by its definition, is the power to attract, basically, to emulate. Uh, um, and the, it's, it's, it's getting people to do what you want them to do, not by force or coercion or payment, but because they want to, because they admire uh, what, you're up, what you represent. So the, I, I prefer the term influence projection. That's what we're really talking about, an effort to influence and shape people's minds. And that's often done in pretty blunt uh, ways. Uh, and in fact, you could even term it hard power in some cases. Uh, so for example, um, you know, with the decision to grant the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize to Liu Xiaobo in 2010, uh, the Chinese reacted very, very aggressively against Norway, uh, even though the Peace Prize is not a government-based decision. Nevertheless, uh, trade negotiations were cut down, the, 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 the diplomatic relationship was put into the freezer uh, for six years. And it wasn't until um, the Norwegian government was basically forced to come out with a, a very uh, apologetic statement that they would never meddle in the internal affairs again uh, of China. Um, I'll note that the Chinese did not reciprocate uh, with the same sort of statement um, when they extracted that from, from Norway. So that's a very sort of blunt and I would say coercive example of influence projection to try and shape and change the way a government says things and does things uh, which China considers sensitive. That's something we're more likely uh, to see going, going forward. And just to shout out another uh, individual in Norway who's done a lot, I'm sorry, in New Zealand who's done a lot of work is a student of Anne-Marie Brady's, James Toe. I mean, he's written the definitive study uh, of, of how uh, overseas Chinese, or Chawu, over, how overseas Chinese are um, actively uh, courted, cultivated, uh, manipulated uh, by the United Front Work Department uh, and the overseas uh, Chinese uh, department uh, in Beijing to try and help shape the image. And, and that's not through soft power. It's often through very coercive uh, and blunt tactics. Yeah, in a, in a recent podcast, in fact, Richard McGregor, uh, who's an Australian journalist, has written an excellent book called Asia's Reckoning that looks at the that looks at the U.S.-Japan-China triangle. It was the subject of a podcast, firstly of a Latrobe Asia podcast, but also of um, one arrival podcast, <laughs> if you like, a little red podcast that Louisa co-hosts. But he says very clearly, you know, China has no soft power. China has coercive power. There's just different kinds that either coerces you with 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 cash or it coerces you with other forms. Um, and if you take, if you buy that line, you have a look at Southeast Asia if you want to look at influence that China is purchasing, particularly, for example, in the Philippines, where it's very explicitly um, cultivating Duterte and his, his economic ambitions. Um, so we have the next one at the back, um, the gentleman, I think, with the black glasses. There we go. Uh, good evening. Thanks very much. Uh, discussion was really good. Uh, my question is regarding um, the public education piece here in Australia. I was wondering whether the panel could uh, offer some suggestions on how best the Australian government can educate and inform 
uh, ordinary Australians about some of the influence that you've discussed. Uh, the Times Square example being a, a good example of how it plays out in the streets. But um, more, more specifically, uh, also towards uh, industry and political leaders, public servants and the like, uh, what should be done to uh, inform them about some of these uh, issues? Anyway. This could be the part where university say, give us more money, because we can help. Yeah. <laughs> Jim. Can I, I just make another recommendation. Um, John Fitzgerald's here, uh, and he has been doing some fantastic work on the particular vulnerabilities of our tertiary sector. Uh, written a number of pieces, uh, both kind of for the more, uh, more, most recently for the Australian Financial Review uh, and, and a longer piece. Um, I mean, there's particular vulnerabilities that I think are quite uh, obvious with, the, with, you know, the over decades, the withdrawal of uh, federal funding, which has left universities to be creative and to go out in the marketplace to find ways to fill the void. And, as we saw with Louisa, one way is to chase the research dollars of China, but of course the biggest way is to chase uh, the international Chinese students that make up 30% of, uh, of our students here in Australia. Um, and you know, that puts Australia and Australian tertiary institutions in a, a potentially vulnerable position. And I think probably the, 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 the most problematic aspect of, uh, of the the tertiary education's engagement with China is the way in which they've really pretty much turned their backs on Chinese international students. They take their money and then they just turn their back on them. They're not interested in engaging with them, uh, educating them in ways that I think we, we would all, all agree are really important to uh, universities. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a completely transactional uh, approach to it, which uh, I find quite shameful, actually. The other, I mean, I'll just make a quick, just a little intervention on, on the, the government side of things, um, which is, you know, the, the, there have been, the, you know, the, the, the changes in our region are of world historical importance. And when your children are all enrolled at Melbourne University, the journalism school, or La Trobe University studying Asian studies, um, in 20 years' time, they're going to look back and go, this was, you know, we were kind of sleepwalking through this tr dramatic period. And Australian governments of both persuasions have not engaged the public in this in a, a frank conversation about what's going on and what it means for them and the risks and opportunities that it faces. There was a white paper in 2012 which, is, which tried to do this but basically presented Asia's transformation as a great big cash machine that just was waiting to be plundered and that's it. Um, since then, all meaningful international policy speeches have, been, uh, have occurred outside of Australia's borders and have been directed at a foreign audience and not at home and for domestic consumption about the kinds of challenges we face. So I think it's a, the failings are not just that of the kind that, that Louise was talking about, uh, that there isn't a, you know, a strategic vision about how we deal with these changes. There's also not a public conversation that's been led by government about it, which I think is, is a, sig a signal failure. And, that, and it's on both sides of politics. It's not just the current government. I mean, when it comes to the public education system, I think one thing to look at is also the role of Confucius Institutes within pu the public education system. And again, it's something that there's not a great deal of transparency on, but there are Confucius Institutes in most, uh, many Australian universities, and also in many public school classrooms. I mean, the Department of Education in New South Wales even has a kind, some kind of partnership with Confucius Institutes. But I think... Uh, because, again, because of maybe shortfalls in funding, school districts are getting Chinese classes and educational materials for free, I think many people are willing to 
overlook or not even examine what the quid pro quo is, you know, what kind of educational materials are being used in these classrooms and even where the funding is coming from. You know, I don't think it's very well known which, which uh, schools, public schools, have got Confucius classrooms and which don't. So again, I think this is something that there needs to be more public uh, conversation of and, and perhaps, you know, to a certain extent, there is uh, more need for people to be a bit more aware and start asking questions about these kind of things. Yeah, in the in the in the policy brief that's coming out tomorrow, we we talk about this in some detail. And the um, the first and most important thing I think is just to make sh try to do our best to, to raise the profile and awareness about this question, not not to demonize uh, the question, but rather to just make sure the public is more fully aware. Um, I would have. I'm assuming by letting you know that 60% of foreign students in GO8 universities are Chinese, are from the People's Republic of China, might come as a bit of a surprise uh, to many. Uh, or that 60% of uh, the foreign students in the uh, ACT are from the People's Republic of China. Uh, or that in Victoria, 40% of international students are from the PRC, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, First and foremost, understand what the risks are about this. There are risks in terms of financial dependence. Uh, there are risks in terms of dumbing down uh, academic rigor in order to um, allow for uh, less well-prepared students to enter into our universities um, because they're bringing high fees. Um, there is the risk that I spoke about specifically, uh, that um, academic freedom might be stifled or constrained in certain contexts. Uh, because of this dependency which universities have. These are big risks, and I think the first step is just to confront them and recognize them and to have an honest conversation about them. Uh, some of the ideas we put forward, what do you do next, what do you do? I mean, to, to our knowledge, there hasn't been a concerted effort, for example, on the part of the G08 to uh, actually have an ongoing conversation with representatives of the um, Chinese government uh, in Australia about how to mitigate some of these problems and to, have, and to try and defuse some of the tensions which are building. I mean, given the importance of Chinese students to uh, Australian academic institutions of higher learning, I think a lot more needs to be done to get in front of this problem uh, and try to mitigate the risks that are, that are growing. I'd say one, one little thing. Most Australian universities are acutely aware of how dependent they are on, on overseas fees, and particularly Chinese sources. They don't know, they can't diversify the revenue. They've been trying for 10 years and they, can't, they don't know quite how to do it. So, Andrew. Yeah, um, I mean, I think this is better than Q&A, frankly, and you, you guys should be on TV. And I, I say that deliberately because I just want to jump on a, a point that Louisa made about being China smart. You know, I, I, I like that term. Um, in the era post-Darwin, post-Dastiari, uh, are those two cases, if you like, a kind of a wake-up call to the broader body politic in Australia, and not just in Canberra at a federal level, because we've got lots and lots of government in Australia all over the place, but at a, at a, at a state level, um, you know, um, I think Colin was telling me that uh, the mayor of the Gold Coast has been travelling up and down to China a lot. How do we amplify this and get it out more in the public domain so that in, maybe instead of having you know, footy confidential, we have an Asia confidential, you know, uh, once a week. And, and because I read the letters that people write into these articles in The Australian and they're sort of saying, you know, some of them are angry, some of them are confused, some of them are saying, what's going on? 
So I think there's a real need to, you know, have some kind of uh, public involvement in making us more China smart. What does the panel think? Are you going to be our agent, Andrew? <laughs> How do we do uh, it? I'll just be terrified to go up against uh, Caroline Wilson. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of scary to think of that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, but but maybe that. I mean, your point is that. Um, you know, we've got a very, you know, engaged, uh, very smart audience here, China's smart audience, and we're maybe missing the target, which is, sorry to use a kind of crude uh, metaphor, but, you know, the Herald Sun tradies, Herald Sun tradie readers. Um, but, you know, you've got to do it very carefully. I mean, I'm very conscious that uh, race, racism is always in the background, and you don't want to appeal to that base instinct and that long history of, uh, of racism uh, towards Asians, uh, in particular Chinese, uh, that runs throughout Australian history. So you've got to have a, you've got to be smart. You've got to have a smart conversation, but it's sometimes hard to engage those people who are not, uh, you know, don't have the time or the inclination to engage in a smart conversation. Maybe it's a case of how do you um, say no when uh, people are being attacked I think, I, I mean, one of the things that strikes me about the, the debate, whether it's about China or other, you know, parts, but particularly about China, is just how polarised it is. So that's to say, you know, you, you, the world is divided into panda huggers or panda bashers, and that's it. You know, that, that um, and, and the, you know, think about the, the complexity, as, as Chap was sort of getting at, the complexity with a guy like, like um, Shuang, Shuang Shuang Mo, thank you. My pronunciation's appalling. Um, is you know is this guy is this guy a remote control agent of the CCP? Probably not. Is he freelancing and trying to buy influence back in Beijing? Probably. But we just we just don't know. And that that ambiguity and complexity is kind of lost in he's a secret agent or he's just a, a, a well-intentioned Guangdong businessman seeking to help out a higher education institution and promote positive relations between China. And the sort of complex nuance that we've been trying to get at here is actually really hard, and it's a hard space to fill. I mean, the other point, I think, is that the larger context, which is there is, a, 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 it seems to, I mean, in where I watch this game very closely, um, there is a small, very, very engaged, very interested group across, you know, academia, um, public policy, NGOs, business sector, and that sort of stuff. But the vast majority out there, the kind of the door is closed in a lot of respects. That's to say, you know, look at investment in the region that's down, um, tr trade's fine, but enrolment in languages, enrolment in Asian studies, in, in almost every other metric that you look at, apart from kind of consumer tourism stuff, the, the Australian engagement with Asia is not where it was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and the question is, how do we get that back in a way that reflects 21st century realities and not 1994 ones? Because I think there is a tendency to say, oh, we'll just do more Asia capability training schemes, like certain you know, organisations up the road, and they're well-intentioned. But... You know, I think that ship has sailed. So the question is, how do we then get out in front of it um, and and have a conversation? And, and I think partly what's happened with the China story is that it's prompting this now, this realization that we've got to grapple with the complexities that that there are hard, you know, that that, that it's a hard, complex world in which there are risks and opportunities. But the fact is, we haven't talked about them. We've sort of pretended that they're not there, partly to avoid having to have have difficult conversations. Um, but to some respect, that's, you know, I think we as, you know, as, as people in institutions that are funded publicly, that have a public service function, 
um, have to, this is the thing we need to do, is to get out and explain it and say, this is why you need to take this seriously. Because if you don't, then in 10 or 15 years' time, and you go, how on earth did it happen? That, that you probably saw the poster here with the Chinese flag put on the, the, the Sydney Opera House. How did that, not literally like something like that, but how did things occur? And we didn't talk about it. But it is, it, it, there is a, we have to be kind of Keynesian about it. You know, we have to prompt demand. It's not, it's, there, there, there's not, you know, we, we have, sorry, we have to stimulate demand, not, not, you know, it's not the other side of the cycle. So, did you, anyone else want to have this? Okay, the next one, sorry, next one on this, I'll come back to you, Paul, um, is the gentleman here with um, his hand up just there. Uh, hi, uh, I just got a question about the uh, the definition the panel used about propaganda. Like you talk about uh, China's uh, the Chinese government using that clip uh, in Times Square to talk about their take on South China Sea. But I mean that's their way of telling the story. So like the Chinese side of the story is missing. So they're trying to do that. I'm not sure why that is uh, like considered propaganda. And if that's so, I mean, how would you call like uh, American government offering like Fulbright scholarship to Chinese, uh, you know, academics to study America and also let's say uh, like uh, Alliance Fran uh, Frances, uh, that school, like opening up schools in China and also like BBC and CNN like talk about Western concepts like democracy, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, these kind of like concepts that are not really inherent in Chinese culture, but in a way like, and also the majority of Chinese people don't really want so isn't that a form of propaganda and also like forcing values onto Chinese people? Um, well, I, I guess I'll just go back to what I, I said before. Um, there's nothing wrong with governments. It's quite common for governments to try and get their message out. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just that as consumers of knowledge and consumers of, of information, um, we ought to all have our eyes wide open as to the sources of that information. And then you can make your own judgment. I'm not here to tell you which way to judge. I'm just, I know the way I feel about the source of information when it comes from the Chinese Communist Party. But, you know, you can make your own choice. Um, and I think there's a significant differentiation uh, between uh, what the Alliance Francaise is trying to do versus what the Confucius Institute is trying to do because of where it is coming from, what its ultimate purpose is. The Confucius Institute is not there simply to convey knowledge of the Chinese language, uh, knowledge of Chinese culture and history. It is also there to reinforce your thinking that the Chinese Communist Party and its leadership of, of China is okay. What they do to their citizens that disagree with them is okay. Right? So, and, and, you, and you can look at whatever the United States wants to say or whatever France wants to say in, 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 you know, through the Fulbright program or through Alliance Francaise or, or through you know, Radio Free Asia or anything you like. Um, I personally just think that there's a very, very substantial difference between the two. And I would say when it comes to, for example, issues of the media, uh, what we're seeing is difference from the kind of functioning of the Alliance Francaise and groups like that. I mean, when you see uh, all of the Chinese language media outlets being acquired by a government and other opinions suppressed, 
then that's kind of qualitatively different because it's not just a question of telling China's story. It's a question of not telling other stories. And, and so maybe the people who consume Chinese language media in Australia didn't want that. Maybe they didn't even know where that information is coming from. Uh, and so I think that's really one of the issues, not just the attempts to ch tell China's story, but the attempts to suppress other stories that are not China's story. Okay, we've got time. Let's say, Colin in the middle and then Paul, and I'll probably, we'll see how we go. So, one, but yeah, just right behind you, Paul. Um, just, and then... <laughs> Unless you want to auction off your question <laughs> in the spirit of markets. Yeah. I'd just like to say I agree with the spirit of the question before. I, um, I think it was, I agree with what he's saying there. But I just don't, and this is not really what my main comment, I just don't understand, Bates, why you are differentiating so much between the Communist Party and China as a country. I think you're overdoing that. I, think, I don't think Australians are, are dumb. I think they know that there is a Communist Party running China, and I think that when information is coming, they know where it's coming from. So I, I, I'm not sure that I really buy that distinction. It just doesn't seem to you know, be all that relevant. Um, anyway, that's just an initial comment. This has been a very interesting discussion. Um, I really don't know what to make of it, and I don't know where it's really heading. Uh, all of the speakers, I think, have said that we've got to avoid China bashing, we've got to avoid demonising China, but the sort of discussion that is being promoted and developed is going to do precisely that. And I hate to say it, but Australians as a whole are maybe not as sophisticated as we would like them to be. Uh, and I think a lot of the things that are going to be said and have been said are going to do precisely what you uh, say we risk doing. Take that Four Corners program. Uh, maybe most people here thought it was a very good program. I thought it was dreadful. I thought it was drawing three or four or five different strands, all showing uh, China and the Chinese government uh, in the worst possible light. It began with that story about Roger Yuren, who was a former colleague of mine, um, and his wife, which actually had nothing to do with anything that happened in the rest of the program. And it's very easy to sort of see a whole lot of dots and join them up and find a vast conspiracy theory. And I think that's what that program did. And I think it was, very, you know, it was the sort of thing that is going to enhance precisely what members of the panel said we should avoid. Now, sure, there are issues out there that need to be looked at and examined very carefully. Uh, and I'm very sure that Australian intelligence agencies and others in government are doing precisely that. Um, I think that uh, we do in Australia have a very robust society. I think we are capable of seeing through a lot of the things that you are worried about. I thought the way in which Sam Dastyari was made to look idiotic after that uh, affair, I think it was precisely that. I mean, if that's the best the Chinese uh, system can do, then, you know, I don't think we have too much to worry about it. I mean, the heavy-handedness, uh, if, if nothing else, was just so apparent. So I think, um, look... There are issues that need to be examined. There are obviously things going on in universities and uh, all those sorts of things that uh, you know, we need to look at and we need to do something about. But I think the risks of really carrying this too far and doing precisely what you have warned us against are very, very real. And I think it's you know, perhaps a bit of uh, kind of uh, reeling back a bit 
And uh, it's all very well to say we need to be wide-eyed and we need to be transparent. But what does that mean? What does being wide-eyed mean? I mean, it, it really doesn't uh, amount to all that much. And I think there's a lot of sophistication that uh, is required and perhaps is not going to be there. I, I think it would be just a quick response. I think that's part of the reason why the public conversation hasn't happened, because it's really hard to do and because it's very difficult to strike the tone if you're the PM or the foreign minister or whomever. It's, it is a very difficult um, balance to strike. Panelists. Well, I think um, your addition to this conversation is precisely why we have to have panels like this, precisely so we can hear from uh, views of the interested public and to push forward exactly in the very sophisticated and balanced way that you just suggested. So I say bravo, uh, and I'm glad we've had this conversation. Let's keep it going. Quick thing. Um, yeah, I, I think what we need to be wide-eyed about is the fact that uh, China, the People's Republic of China, is you know ruled by a, a you know a, a one-party state that is obsessed, obsessed by maintaining its power. You know, I've I've lived in China for several years. I've got many Chinese friends. I've you know I, I feel, I've dedicated my academic life to trying to understand Chinese politics. And when I see, it, I don't like. I see a China that locks up its human rights activists. I see a China that uh, closes down the internet. I see a China who doesn't allow free speech in criticism. Many of the things that I, you know, as an Australian, uh, cherish. And yes, maybe we have different views or different values. Uh, I think it's important that we talk about those. But in the end, uh, we all had to choose uh, the values we want to live by. Um, and my values are different, not from Chinese people, but from the Chinese Communist Party. Paul, are you, it'd be like a classical piece of literature framed by Paul Monk. So. Thanks. Just, just uh, briefly before my question, I'd like to respond to each of the last two statements or questions. You know, in the long history of China, there have been eras of great cosmopolitan openness and the Tang Dynasty is often celebrated. There were Christians, there were Buddhists, there were people from various parts of the world, there were Arabs, etc., all coming to China with different beliefs and that was fully accepted by the regime. The only really totalitarian periods in China where that has been cracked down on are the Qin Emperor and the current regime, the communist regime. It's not to the credit of China that that has happened. Um, the... the the last set of remarks, it seems to me, go to my earlier question, and that's why I raised my hand again. My concern would be if, Bates, we had a peak body, um, let's say a government body, it would err on the side of caution for just the reasons that have been explained. It would be afraid of setting hairs running. Therefore, as I think I said in print, we need more forums of exactly this kind. We need people at universities who are scholars, who are well-informed, who are temperate by disposition, convoking discussion and getting on radio and writing opinion pieces in the press to draw informed attention to the issues that are at stake and ensuring that they're informed rather than leaving it to um, people who get anxious but don't have the knowledge base to make an articulate and informed judgment about the matter. That's more a statement than a question, I suppose, but I'd welcome any response from the panel. In the spirit of q and I'll take that as a comment. No, Jim. Just one very, very quick comment. We, and we need more Chinese voices to contribute uh, to the English language discussion. I mean, note we're, there's no Chinese panelists here. We've got some great ones in the audience, and I'm glad they ask questions. But we also need, you know, if you feel that way, we need that voice articulated not only in the Chinese language media, where it occurs all the time, but also in the, 
the English language media. We need we need to we need to ha you know include Chinese voices in the in this really important discussion. Excellent note on which to conclude this evening's panel. Um, I mentioned earlier on that Latrobe Asia was established with a, a range of um, ambitions, uh, and one of which is to make contributions to public debate in areas where we have something, um, some comparative advantage or something to offer. Uh, and so I think on the basis of this evening's conversation, I can tick at least one KPI off for the year. And so thank you all for that. Um, before we go, I'd like to just thank, thank a few people for making this evening possible. Um, most immediately, the staff at the State Library of Victoria. It's always a pleasure um, to work with you. We won't be here every Tuesday. We were here last Tuesday, so um, you will, it'll be a little while before you see us again. Um, I'd like to thank my team at La Trobe Asia. Um, they're a picture of professionalism and a, an absolute pleasure to work with. Uh, thank you all, the audience, for coming, making your time on a typically Mel unpredictable Melbourne Tuesday in spring. Um, and last but by no means least, I'd like to thank Bates, Louisa and Jim for taking time out of their very busy schedules to, to speak with us um, this evening. So thank you all.